morning. This is a hearing on the subcommittee on the Western Hemisphere. I'll give you the whole title. Transnational Crime, Civilian Security, Democracy, Human Rights, and Global Women's Issues. We've got to come up with a good acronym. But um, the title is Assessing the Columbia Peace Process, the Way Forward for U.S.-Columbia Relations. We're going to have two panels. The first is a government panel. Mr. William Brownfield is the Assistant Secretary of State at the Bureau of International Narcotics and Law Enforcement, and Mr. Francisco Palmieri, who is the Acting Assistant Secretary of State in the Bureau of Western Hemisphere Affairs. The second panel will be non-government witnesses who have extensive government experience. Mr. Jose Cardenas, three decades of experience in the Western Hemisphere and inter-American relations. He served in senior positions in the U.S. Department of State, the National Security Council, the U.S. Agency for International Development, where he was, served as the acting assistant administrator for Latin America and the Caribbean, and Mr. Juan Gonzalez, who has spent 16 years of government service focused on Latin America and the Caribbean with the State Department, the National Security Council, and the Office of the Vice President. I welcome all the witnesses here today. I'm going to abbreviate my comments. We have a vote at 11, and so I, I want to get through this as quickly as possible because at some point there'll be an interruption. But let me just say that since the 90s, we know that Colombia has fought a battle against narco-terrorist organizations that threatened the very existence of the Colombian state. At one point, it was on the verge of collapse. The road to recovery for that nation has been long and arduous, one that's unfortunately claimed far too many victims along the way. With the full support of the Colombian government, beginning with President Uribe, and, and broad bipartisan support in the United States, the U.S. government has played a crucial role in aiding and training and equipping the Colombian government in their fight against the insurgencies that were brought about by the FARC, the ELN, and other groups. Through Plan Colombia, the United States provided foreign aid and military assistance that included strategies to increase security and to eradicate COCA. And uh, the cooperation between the U.S. and Colombia has been critical over the past 16 years. It has been supported by Republicans and by Democratic administrations. And the success of the plan has reduced drug-related violence while aiding in the restoration of rule of law and reviving the Colombian economy. I do think it's important to add here that while the U.S. assistance has been critical, the bulk of the sacrifice, the work, and the dedication has been on the shoulders of the Colombian people and their leaders. Um, and, um, and, and they deserve extraordinary credit. But the United States has played an invaluable role. The result of it is the Colombian military is now the best armed and trained in Latin America. It's a reliable security partner for the United States. It's also exporting its expertise to help build the capacity and the capability of other countries in the regions, particularly in Central America. The success of this cooperation uh, led in the culmination in 2012 of talks between the Colombian government and the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, better known as the FARC, uh, still designated and rightfully so as a terrorist organization. Our joint efforts in the determination and leadership of former President Uribe and its current President Santos and Reba's Minister of Defense created the space for these negotiations to even be possible. These negotiations led to an agreement that was initially rejected in a national referendum, but it was that nevertheless passed through the Colombian legislature after the fact. The core provisions in this agreement include land and rural development, the FARC's political participation, efforts to counter illicit crops and drug trafficking, work on victims' reparations and transitional justice, and the demobilization and disarmament of the FARC and a bilateral ceasefire. Now it is on us uh, to evaluate, well, obviously we will, it is the sovereign decision of a sovereign nation to determine whether the peace deal is a good idea and how to move forward on it. As American policymakers, we now have to determine, as this is being implemented, uh, what role we will play in continuing assistance to Colombia and, and whether uh, our interests uh, are aligned with the work that's being done 
There have already been two provisions in the agreement implemented. Uh, the FARC has demobilized or allegedly demobilized into 26 rural concentrated zones. Some claim that up to 7,000 combatants have turned in their arms, but there are still many concerns that remain unresolved. Despite the agreement, FARC rebels, more FARC rebels than the Colombian government initially thought are deciding not to participate in the agreement. Remnant groups of the FARC such as the, uh, and, and others, such as the ELN, the Kalang del Golfo, and the other Bakrim are uh, rushing to fill the void left by the FARC in areas where they have uh, demobilized, and they are now occupying territory that was once controlled by the FARC. There are other troubling signs. Uh, there's reports that 60 leading rights defenders were killed in 2016, a significant increase from the 41 in 2015. The, mass, the vast majority of these threats occurred in the zones that were previously occupied by the FARC. These countries, these numbers are alarming, and they cannot be ignored in this process. Uh, further drawing on the element of insecurity is the illicit drug trade. In the past couple of years, Colombia has experienced a drastic increase in the coca crops. According to reports issued this year by the State Department, Colombia has had a 42% increase in illegal coca cultivation since 2014 through 2015. And the same report attributes the increase to a number of factors, including the government's decision, the Santos government's decision to terminate coca eradication through aerial spraying. The result is that Colombia, sadly, is once again the world leader in coca production and illicit narcotics trafficking, with record amounts of both helping to fuel violence in Central America and Mexico. And the repercussions are being felt throughout the region, including our own borders, where according to the U.S. Customs and Border Protection, the amount of cocaine seized in the nation increased dramatically in 2014 and 2015 to coincide with the dramatic increase in cultivation. Just two weekends ago, the Costa Rican Ministry of Public Security reported they've intercepted 9.4 tons of cocaine just this year. And, of course, this flow of cocaine is only furthering corruption and security concerns in the region. So while I applaud the efforts made by the Colombian government to reach a peaceful agreement with those who once tormented and destabilized the country, I think there are concerns about the way this plan is being implemented and, more importantly, how U.S. foreign policy and U.S. assistance overlays with the current agreement. And clearly more work remains in order to truly achieve not just peace, but security. Peace without security is not peace. The support of the Colombian people in this transition and the assurance of justice to the victims of this conflict, particularly the victims of these narco-terrorists, is essential. So I look forward to hearing from our witnesses today as we begin to assess the way forward on the U.S.'s participation with Plan Colombia and to hear their recommendations for the administration and for Congress as we look to address the growth in narcotics trafficking and support our allies, the Colombian government, in securing their country. Uh, because in many ways, the most difficult part of this job remains ahead. And now I recognize the ranking member, Senator Menendez. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, uh, for holding a, I think, a very important hearing today. I know that you and I both have a keen interest in the implementation of the peace accords in Colombia and how they impact overall security and stability in our hemisphere. And I'm very pleased that we have administration witnesses, which is a rarity uh, so far uh, in this Congress, and esteemed ones at that, who will be able to offer insight and their own expertise on the issues uh, we will discuss uh, today. Over the past few decades, the United States and Colombia have had a productive, cooperative, successful relationship. We have worked together to address shared challenges, including the scourge of narco-trafficking, working to promote regional cooperative programs, including the Caribbean Energy Security Initiative, and recently speaking with one voice about the importance of preserving democratic institutions in peace in Venezuela. 
while we could have an entire hearing on our trade relationship and the importance of protecting labor rights, suffice to say, when we have challenges in our relationship, we have the foundation of a strong relationship and strong institutions through which to address them. Today, however, we're focusing on the implementation of Colombia's peace plan and implications for regional stability and security. Building off misguided ideological movements of the mid-1900s, the FARC, the ELN, right-wing paramilitary groups, and other spoilers ravaged the Colombian population and country for decades. Many consider the Colombia Peace Accords one of the greatest achievements in the region in recent memory, providing the opportunity to end the region's longest war and bring stability and prosperity to the entire country. While some, including some in Colombia, may have wanted to see different final terms of an agreement, as a recent Atlantic Council Task Force report, which I commend to anyone who may be interested, put it, quote, applied robustly, the peace accord represents a historic opportunity to extend state presence and democratic institutions throughout Colombia's territory, with corresponding peace dividends, security, stability, counter-narcotics, economic development, and measure to address the long-term roots of violent conflict that cost more than 220,000 lives. Applied poorly, the agreement may sap government resources while leaving gross war crimes unpunished and allowing new illegal armed groups to appropriate the FARC's territory and illicit activities. So I'm eager to hear from our witnesses their assessment of implementation so far and what we can do to ensure that we are rigorously and robustly assisting in the implementation of this plan. Of course, the Colombian people have borne the burden of the previously seemingly intractable insurgency. Women, Afro-Colombians, indigenous communities, rural Colombians have disproportionately suffered and shed blood from this internal conflict. It is incumbent upon the Colombian government to uphold commitments to those Colombians who suffered the most at the hands of the FARC. Millions of Colombians are still mourning the death of family members, as thousands are still searching for disappeared loved ones. Many are still suffering from the trauma of violence. In order to fully realize the potential of a grand bargain, the government must invest in roads, hospitals, schools, and promote a better future for all of its citizens, many of whom have suffered under years of neglect and lack of investment. Criminal networks and guerrilla operations were successful in part because they exploited an absence of responsible government. At the same time, the government cannot exclusively focus its efforts on what it considers the positive components of the peace accord. I have been deeply alarmed by reports over the past few years that coca production is surging in Colombia. Official numbers show that coca production increased 18 percent between 2015 and 2016. It would appear that the government is so focused on its peace deal with the FARC it runs the risk of overlooking the dangerous actors who are still too eager to exploit their departure from the lucrative, disruptive, and dangerous narco industry. The Colombian government must seriously address this growing crisis as we in the United States continue to combat demand. It must clearly delineate roles for the military and the police, and it must equip these forces with the resources they need to not only go after traffickers, but at the root level, the government needs to work with farmers to provide viable crop alternatives and economic opportunities. At the mid-level, the government, with the support of the United States, must explore the supply chain and the financial networks that facilitate the cultivation and exportation of these programs. Transnational criminal organizations operate like businesses, and we must holistically address them to combat this problem effectively. 
Banks and financial institutions need resources to track the money of criminal actors and to recover assets that can be used towards promoting better practices. The peace deal will leave a vacuum in the fields of Colombia, and we must ensure it is not refilled with coca. There is a real need to ensure we build the capacity of Colombian institutions to cut off the body of the snake as well as the head. As Plan Colombia proved U.S. engagement, sustained, reliable investment, focused on combating criminal narco-trafficking, economic development, and supporting democratic institutions that will ultimately guarantee peace, security, and accountability in the long term is critical for success. So I'm interested to hear from our witnesses about ongoing efforts to transfer, transfer from a war-ending effort to a peace-building one. The fact is, a lasting and enduring peace is in the national interest of both Colombia and the United States. Keeping in mind the historically important and strong relationship we have with Colombia, it is my hope that we can find productive and positive ways to address these challenges and focus on a more prosperous and secure future for both of our countries. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Let, uh, let's begin with our witnesses. I, Secretary Brownfield, thank you for being here. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, Chairman Rubio, Ranking Member Menendez, Senator Shaheen. Thank you for the opportunity to appear today to discuss the Colombia peace process and counter-narcotics efforts after the peace agreement. It is impossible not to celebrate the end of 50 years of armed conflict. In fact, the accord was facilitated by generous support from this Congress and the United States. Since the inception of Plan Colombia, homicides dropped by more than 50%, kidnappings by 90%, and until 2013, cocaine by 60%. Fueled by security success, foreign investment and economic growth boomed in Colombia. But as we celebrate the accord, we must not forget that one of the parties to the accord has been designated for years as a foreign terrorist organization and a drug trafficking organization. In fact, in the final three years of the negotiations, coca cultivation in Colombia grew 130% and cocaine production more than 200%. I do not lay all of this at the FARC's feet. The government itself reduced eradication by ending aerial, aerial spraying in 2015 but the FARC was a key enabler of the cocaine explosion. They aggressively encouraged planting more coca in their regions of influence, hoping to receive more economic assistance from the government. They established front groups to resist eradication and crop control efforts. They refused to assist law enforcement in bringing to justice drug trafficking organizations by providing evidence and information and to this day, they declined to reveal their revenue and assets acquired during decades of criminal activity. We now have a crisis, not just in Colombia, but in the United States. I have visited Colombia twice in the past two months to address this crisis. In each visit, I acknowledged publicly that the Colombian police and armed forces have done a heroic job of interdiction. Their 2016 seizures <clears throat> grew 40% from the year before to more than 421 metric tons. But Colombia cannot, <clears throat> cannot interdict its way out of this problem. 
and we have discussed six steps we can take together to reverse the trends. First, a serious Colombian national strategy to address the crisis. Second, designating a national coordinator for a whole-of-government effort. President Santos wisely placed his vice president in charge of this effort. Third, an expanded and robust budget for counter-narcotics. Fourth, enhanced eradication efforts, including areas previously off-limits to forced eradication. Fifth, a strategy to deal with the political realities of coca growers' protests driving away eradicators. And sixth, a commitment to continue to use extradition as a tool against those involved in drug trafficking. Mr. Chairman, members of the subcommittee, eradication has picked up in 2017. I am moderately optimistic that this year will cap the increase in Colombian cocaine production and maybe begin a downward trend line. It is in the national interest of neither country that Colombia continue its surge in coca and cocaine production. I believe we will solve this latest drug crisis because we are close partners and friends for more than 17 years. But we have a long way to go, and the FARC has not made it easy for us. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and I look forward to your questions and your comments. Thank you. Uh, Secretary Palmier. Chairman Rubio, uh, Ranking Member Menendez, members of the subcommittee, thank you for convening this hearing to discuss Colombia. Colombia is a strategic U.S. partner at a critical time who works with us to advance U.S. national security and economic prosperity interests in the hemisphere and around the world. We are working with the Colombian government on its efforts to implement its peace accord with the FARC. Colombia is one of our most willing and capable partners in the region. A Colombia at peace will strengthen its ability to support mutual priorities, including promoting a stable and democratic region and countering narcotics trafficking, transnational crime, terrorism, and illegal migration. As conditions deteriorate in Venezuela, further instability has the potential for tremendous negative impact on its neighbors and the region. The situation in Venezuela carries special risks for Colombia. Every day, thousands of Venezuelans cross the border and return home after purchasing basic goods in Colombia. Colombia has joined the United States and the OAS member states in issuing statements offering to assist the people of Venezuela in addressing their political, economic, and humanitarian crises. We will continue to work with Colombia and other regional partners to promote a peaceful, democratic resolution to Venezuela's challenges. As you all know, the Colombian government finalized the peace accord with the FARC in November 2016. Colombia has made some important progress implementing the accord. Near, nearly 7,000 FARC rebels peacefully relocated to 26 UN-monitored disarmament zones. UN officials confirmed the rebels completed the surrenders of the fighters' individual weapons June 27, a significant step in the party's ongoing efforts to implement the accord. The parties agreed to decommission more than 900 weapons caches outside the zones by September 1. The Colombian government passed key peace accord 
implementing legislation, including an amnesty law, a law on political participation, and laws to set up the special jurisdiction for peace. The SJP is designed to hold accountable those most responsible for war crimes, crimes against humanity, and gross human rights violations. Colombia is investing heavily in its own future and will cover 90% of the peace accord implementation costs. Our critical contribution will provide U.S. expertise to enhance the implementation efforts. Our program in Colombia focuses assistance on security, the expansion of state institutions and presence in former rebel areas, on economic development, humanitarian demanding, and justice services and other support for victims. We also continue to provide bilateral assistance to support Colombia's efforts to dismantle illegal armed groups which have been responsible for violence against civil society activists. We are coordinating with the Colombian government to see how our support can be most helpful. Our programs will also expand humanitarian demining operations across the country supporting the U.S.-Norway-led Global Demining Initiative for Colombia to facilitate rural economic development, land restitution, and victims' reparations. We are also making progress in promoting human rights in Colombia, though there are significant challenges. We are deeply concerned by reports of increased killings and threats against human rights defenders and social activists. It is essential to quickly and thoroughly investigate and prosecute those responsible for these crimes. We welcome Colombia's recent advances to prioritize investigations of killings and threats against human rights defenders and civil society activists. Concrete results, including the convictions, are critical to prevent future violence. The support of the U.S. Congress has been instrumental to everything the United States has achieved, has achieved with Colombia, and your support will be needed now more than ever as Colombia attempts to find a real and lasting peace. Chairman Rubio, Ranking Member Menendez, members of the subcommittee, thank you for the opportunity to meet with you today and for your continuing commitment to helping advance U.S. national security and economic prosperity in Colombia and across this entire hemisphere. I look forward to your questions. We thank you both for being here. Uh, Secretary Palmieri, let me begin uh, with this, and you've alluded to it in your opening statement about how the instability in the neighboring nation of Venezuela has an impact on Colombia. As you know, uh, this Sunday there was an election, or a purported election in Venezuela, uh, that sought to replace the National Assembly that had been democratically elected by the people with this new constituent assembly. Is it the position of the Department of State that the election on Sunday and its results are legitimate? The election on Sunday was a flawed attempt to undermine democratic institutions in Venezuela, and we support the democratically elected National Assembly in its efforts to promote an enduring peaceful solution to the crises in, in Venezuela. So, so just to be clear, is it the position of the administration that the vote that occurred on Sunday is illegitimate? Uh, the vote, the, the election was a flawed election that did not follow uh, the constitutional uh, precepts uh, for such an election, and as such, uh, the results uh, are in question. Yes, sir. Okay, let me try it this way. The, 
the election on Sunday is going to put in place, as early as today, a constituent assembly, which is elected, according to them, 535 people. They're going to wipe out the National Assembly, which you have just said is legitimate, and they're going to replace it with this constituent assembly of 535 supporters of Maduro. Is that constituent assembly legitimate? The, the only legitimate elected, democratically elected representatives of the Venezuelan people is the National Assembly. The Constituent Assembly is a flawed process that undermines any progress toward an enduring peaceful solution to the crisis yeah. there. But I understand that. We, do not, the, the we do not recognize the seating of that Constituent Assembly. So uh, without using the term illegitimate, if you say that the only legitimate elected is the National Assembly and you don't recognize the Constituent Assembly, um, I understand you're limited by what you've been authorized to say or because it's not, you know, you speak for the administration you don't, and for the State Department, you don't make these decisions, although you certainly have input. But from that, I take it that we do not recognize the Constituent Assembly as a legitimate representative of the people. The, it is a flawed process. It will not contribute yeah. to the solution. But it's not the process. I know the process was flawed. The outcome is this new Constituent Assembly. Are they, are they a legitimate there cannot be a legitimate National Assembly and a legitimate Constituent Assembly. They are in conflict with one another. If the National Assembly is the only legitimate entity, the Constituent Assembly, by definition, is illegitimate. I, I take your point, Senator. Yes, sir. Okay, so you're not authorized today to say that they're illegitimate. You're just authorized to say that the process was flawed and the National Assembly is legitimate. We will not, we will not recognize the seating of the Constituent Assembly and its, its assertion of the powers of the duly elected National Assembly. The, re the reason why I'm drilling down on this is because I know this issue is about uh, Colombia, but this Venezuela has a direct impact on Colombia. I think Secretary Brownfield would absolutely agree with that. There's an article in an interview that was given by Mr. Fitzpatrick, the manager of South America and the State Department. I don't know if that's the right title, but that's what it said here. It was given to EFE, EFE which is a Spanish-speaking language outlet from Spain. And it basically said that while the United States believes in Venezuela is a dictatorship, it still considers the government of Nicolás Maduro to be legitimate and would not recognize a possible parallel uh, executive form by the opposition. So the problem that we have with that statement is if the Constituent Assembly is, in essence, according to Maduro, the new government, they have, it would be the equivalent of an administration in the United States holding a vote to wipe out the existence of Congress and replacing Congress with a whole new set of people, all loyal to the executive. And so if the National Assembly is legitimate, the Constitutional Assembly we do not recognize is now the new form of government, and they're going to move forward now to rewrite the Constitution, how can we argue, or how can the position be that Nicolás Maduro is legitimate, even if the government that he is now put in place is one we don't recognize? I'm not sure I, I, I understand the, the question, sir. Maduro if, if, argues there's a new government in Venezuela, that the existing government no longer exists. A new government is taking over through the Constituent Assembly, and we don't recognize it. That's what you've just said. So how can we argue that Maduro's government is legitimate if Maduro himself is saying the government he's put in place is one that you say you don't recognize? It is, it is clear that with this effort to seat a Constituent Assembly, the Maduro government is proceeding to greater and greater authoritarian rule in the country. The seating of 
the attempted seating of a constituent assembly will be met with swift and strong action by this administration to ensure that the democratically elected institutions in Venezuela are protected, including the role of the National Assembly. Well, I'm going to turn over to the ranking member. Just to, here's my advice. Um, you have a new government in Venezuela. As early as today, they are going to nullify completely the existence of a National Assembly, which we recognize as legitimate, correct? Yes. And elected. They're going to basically say, you're no longer the National Assembly. You no longer exist. We have this new government under a constitutional assembly. We don't recognize them. As early as some point today, that is going to be, according to Maduro, the new government of Venezuela. Um, that was the whole purpose of this vote. I don't know how we're going to be able to continue to argue that we recognize the legitimacy of the Maduro government if the Maduro government, as early as today, is going to formally announce that it is something we don't recognize. And so... Um, I think we're in a, I think that issue needs to be flushed out here pretty quickly because the Constituent Assembly is now the new government of Venezuela, according to Maduro, and we don't recognize it. So if we don't recognize it, how can we argue that it's legitimate? I think that's a point that, that the State Department's going to have to clarify here probably in the next few hours, if, if not later today, uh, when they finally try to seat these people. The ranking member. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, uh, and I, I, I do echo some of your concerns. Who is Mr. Fitzpatrick? What is his role at the State Department? Uh, Michael Fitzpatrick is the Deputy Assistant Secretary for South America. Deputy Assistant Secretary. Is he acting or is he actually the Deputy Assistant Secretary? He is the Deputy Assistant Secretary, sir. For South America. So um, let me just say that uh, from my perspective, I think Ambassador Haley gets it right. She called the Maduro government illegitimate, and it is illegitimate. And a constituent assembly that at the end of the day uh, we don't recognize that is flawed uh, is not only flawed, it's illegitimate. And one of our challenges in foreign policy, whether it be in Venezuela or elsewhere in the world, is sometimes we just won't call it what it is. An invasion is an invasion of Ukraine. It's not a usurpation. It's an invasion. And uh, illegitimacy... Uh, of a dictatorship, which now the administration has recognized the Maduro government as a dictatorship, something I applaud, is, uh, you know, a illegitimate government. So uh, when Ambassador Haley says Maduro's sham election is another step towards dictatorship, we won't accept an illegitimate government, I think that that speaks volumes about what we should be doing, and that's why I applaud her work. Let me ask you, and this is important because the potential overflow into Colombia is destabilizing. Uh, as well as for the region. Do you believe, and you can both give me yes or no answers to this, do you believe it, it is in the United States' interest to support democracies that promote the rule of law and justice? Uh, yes, sir. As do I, Senator. Do you believe it is in our interest to fund foreign assistance programs that support democracy and human rights programming? Yes, sir. As do I. Has our engagement with Colombia on these priorities produced positive results that uh, directly promote the security and prosperity of the United States? Yes, yes, it has, sir. Yes. Okay, thank you. We don't get uh, administration witnesses that often, so I just want to create certain templates here. Uh, Ambassador uh, uh, Brownfield, let me ask you, can you give us a better update on efforts to confront Colombian criminal organizations, the ELN or the BACRIM, the Bandas Criminales, as they step into the areas of coca cultivation previously controlled by the FARC? And can you speak... Uh, to uh, either you or, or Secretary Palmer, can you speak 
that under the terms of the peace accord, FARC members who committed lesser crimes are eligible for amnesty under certain conditions, and the Colombian government has signaled it will not comply with extradition requests. However, many FARC members are wanted in the United States for serious crimes related to murder, kidnapping, and drug trafficking. Can you discuss uh, the ongoing uh, efforts with the Colombian government on extradition requests? I understand, for example, the embassy may have recently raised the case of Julio Enrique Moreno. So speak to those two things for me, uh, I guess on the first part, uh, Secretary Brownfield, and then maybe Mr. Palmieri on the second. In fact, I'll take a crack at both of them, Fine. Uh, Senator Menendez, and then let Paco uh, add on as he thinks best. Uh, what is their approach in terms of taking down uh, the, the drug trafficking organizations and the ELN, which also is a drug trafficking organization, uh, in the aftermath of the peace accord? They have developed a national strategy, uh, which is called the CEO strategy, uh, the Centros Estratégicos Operacionales, the strategic, the operational strategic centers uh, strategy. And, and the strategy defines four principal drug producing zones in Colombia, in the southwest uh, around uh, Nariño, uh, in the center east up in upper Antioquia, uh, in the northeast near the Venezuelan border uh, in Norte de Santander, uh, and in the east center uh, in the province of uh, San Jose de Guaviare. And the concept is to do a whole-of-government comprehensive approach that includes both voluntary and forced eradication, uh, government support, and uh, police and, and military presence to ensure government control in those zones. It's not a bad strategy. It is, however, going at it piece by piece. They started in the Southwest. They were very heavy on voluntary, not so heavy on involuntary, and it is so far producing, as I suggested in my statement, better results than we saw in 2016, but they're going to have a tough time meeting their own self-announced uh, objectives for 2017. You know, better results than, two, six, than 2016 is a low threshold. It is. It's setting the bar extremely low. I could not agree with you more in, in that regard. Regard. They have set their objective of 50,000 hectares, about 120,000 acres, uh, for, uh, for involuntary eradication in 2017. I would be pleased if they made that result. I'm not certain that they are going to. Amnesty and extradition. You have, you have hit an issue that causes us collectively, me personally, uh, a great deal of frustration. And let me use the specific case that you referred to. Uh, it was a case that I knew back in my day in 2009 when I was in Colombia as the Padron case. Padron was a U.S. citizen who was living in Panama. He was kidnapped for, 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 for revenue, uh, basically for ransom, uh, by an individual who was part of the FARC 57th Front, but was not operating in Colombia. He was operating in Panama. There is no evidence that he had FARC uh, command uh, authority or direction to perform this kidnapping. He earned a substantial amount of money. I have heard a figure of up to $2 million from this kidnapping, and I have seen no evidence that would suggest he shared this with the FARC. 
Okay, he comes into the custody of the Colombian National Police earlier in this year. He goes through the process. The argument that we made somewhat emphatically is this gent is surely outside of the purview uh, of, uh, of the amnesty that applies to FARC, uh, uh, FARC members who conduct or commit crimes uh, while, part, while, while operating as active FARC members. He was outside of Colombia. He did it for personal gain. He did it against a foreign citizen. There was obviously an active uh, request for the extradition of that individual. The judicial process concluded that, in fact, he was covered. This is bad news because during my two trips to Colombia earlier this year, the agreement that I had hoped we had reached was that we would try to keep individuals outside of the amnesty. In other words, the objective, if there is a means of saying this individual uh, it can, it should not be covered by uh, the peace accord and its amnesty, that is what we should aspire to, to have as few covered rather than as many to keep extradition an effective. We're not there yet. We need to work more on this issue. It is not a simple issue. At the end of the day, it was the Supreme Court who made this decision, but it is an excellent example of the problems that we still have. Thank you. Thank you to the ranking member. Senator Sheen, if you just indulge me for a moment, I just want to put this on the record because we were talking about this. There are now 40 Democratic countries that have announced they do not recognize uh, the Constituent Assembly in Venezuela. They are as follows. Canada, Argentina, Brazil, Chile, Colombia, who we're talking about today, Costa Rica, Mexico, Panama, Peru, Paraguay, and Austria, Belgium, Bulgaria, uh, Croatia, Denmark, Slovakia, Slovenia, Estonia, Finland, France, Greece, Holland, Hungary, Ireland, Northern Ireland, Italy, Lithuania, Luxembourg, Malta, Poland, Portugal, the Czech Republic, England, Romania, Switzerland, Sweden, Spain, Norway, um, I may have missed a couple. It's just a growing list. We are not alone in that uh, calculation. Senator Shaheen. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you both for being here and for your service to the country. Uh, Secretary Brownfield, I, I want to go back to your discussion about what's happening with coca production and with the drug trade in Colombia. Um, a number of us had a chance to, senators had a chance to meet with President Santos when he was here earlier this year, and we I think uniformly express concern about the increased production, coca production in 2016 and what, and 2015 and, and what that meant. He expressed a continued commitment to try and address that. Um, for me, this, and for my home state of New Hampshire, this is a very personal issue. We have the second highest overdose death rates in the country. And so whatever we can do to help interdict those drugs, to help reduce um, the production of illegal drugs is going to be very important to us. And as I'm sure you all heard yesterday, the President's Commission on the Opioid Epidemic recommended declaring a national health emergency uh, around the opioid epidemic, which I fully support. So what what more can be done? You described that six-point plan that sounds good in the abstract, but it's hard for me to see how that's really going to have much impact. So what more can we do to encourage um, anti-drug 
cocoa production efforts in Colombia, and what what do you see being done between Colombia, Mexico, and the United States to address drugs coming into this country? Senator, I'm in the uncomfortable position of agreeing with everything that you have said. And, yeah, I'm sure uh, you do. And, and, and actually uh, wanting to reinforce some of your points. First, your meetings and discussions with Juan Manuel Santos, the, the president of, uh, of Colombia. He is a gentleman that I respect enormously. Uh, I have known him since, since I served as ambassador and he was the Minister of Defense uh, in 2007 to 2009. If he were not the president, I would say that we are friends. You're not allowed to be friends unless you're another president with a president, but that is the degree of respect I have for President Santos. He has a difficult situation to deal with. He is trying to bring peace and end a 50-year armed conflict that has taken tens of thousands of lives in his country and we have to respect that and honor that. And he believes that, that he needs to address the drug issue in a way that is not going to complicate his, his peace objectives. Fine, he has come up with, with some ideas, more voluntary eradication, more alternative development with assistance, uh, literally economic and social development assistance uh, by the government to the coca growers, and, and I think those are noble objectives. The problem is 40 years of counter-narcotics efforts around the world have taught me, at least, uh, that you cannot use just a, 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 single, a single element in a formula to produce the results. We've tried that in the past. We tried to just do a lot of eradication and that will cut, uh, cut off all drug importations in the United States. It didn't work in the 1980s. It's not going to work today. We have tried crop substitution. We have tried alternative development. Uh, we have tried uh, comprehensive development. If that's the only thing that we're offering, the Campesino takes the assistance and continues to grow coca or opium poppy. There has to be a hard edge to the policy as well. So at the end of the day, our problem is maintaining a balanced approach. Heavy work by the police that are going to say, you've got 30 days to eradicate your own coca, or we're going to come in and do it for you. And if you want to get the money from the government, you blipping well better eradicate now. That's the nature of the argument that we are having. You have put your finger second on what is today the worst drug crisis that affects and has affected the United States for at least 40 years since the, the, the crack cocaine crisis of the 1980s, and we're all old enough, more or less, to remember that uh, and, uh, uh, and what the impact uh, uh, on us was at that particular point in time. Now, the good news, I guess, from the Colombia perspective is that very little of that is coming out of Colombia. Uh, very little heroin is now being produced in Colombia, as you well know, because you have had these conversations a number of times with my, my colleagues in the counter-narcotics community. Uh, the overwhelming majority of heroin uh, that is consumed in the United States comes from Mexico. Mexico, a different problem set, but you put your finger with your third point on how to work that issue trilaterally, U.S., Colombia, Mexico. The truth is uh, we are kind of three of the four or five major countries in, in, in the Western Hemisphere. We are working well together on certain issues. We're working well together in Central America in terms of exporting security capabilities and training uh, and law enforcement skills into Central America. 
America. We are working more cooperatively in terms of how to address maritime and air aerial trafficking uh, that goes from Colombia, frankly a lot of it via Venezuela, up over through or around Central America and into Mexico. We are making progress there, Senator. But I'm going to close my answer by saying something that I, I, I say all the time because I'm an old fart now and I'm allowed to say this sort of thing. I've been in this business for 39 years. I realize and I have learned that it takes us many years to get into these messes and these crises and it's going to take us a good number of years to get out of them. Hold me accountable for long-term objectives, but at the end of the day, I am not going to be able to produce a result or an outcome for you by lunch today or even lunch tomorrow. Well, my time is up, but I certainly appreciate that, and I also think the point that you make that there is not a silver bullet answer to this problem. Just as, as we address the opioid epidemic in this country, there is not one answer. It takes a variety of approaches and a real collaborative effort, and we need to continue that and reward good behavior where it occurs and punish bad behavior where it occurs. So thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Thank you. And just for the record, I'm 46. I do remember it. Senator Gardner is only 42, so you may have to talk to him about the crack uh, epidemic. I was making eye contact with no one, Mr. Chairman. <laughs> Absolutely no one. I remember when there were Saturday morning cartoons. I don't know what that uh, <laughs> Senator Gardner. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and uh, thank you to the witnesses for being here today. Um, I think uh, several months ago, after the retirement, I guess last Congress, after the retirement of General Kelly from Southcom, he came to our conference and addressed the conference about his experience leading Southcom. And uh, Senator Rubio was there, and I don't know if he remembers the exact number that General Kelly used, but in this conversation with the conference, General Kelly said uh, it was his experience at Southcom that uh, we had eyes on 90%, and that, again, 90% may or may not have been the number, but a very high percentage of the uh, drugs uh, flow from South Central America to the United States. Uh, it was just a resource issue on how to deal with it. D could you expound on that, or maybe whether you agree or disagree with that? Is this, do we have eyes on that high of a percentage of what's happening, what's coming in, and it's just a resource issue? Senator, I, uh, I, I've learned never to disagree with General and, uh, and then Secretary and now <laughs> Chief of Staff Kelly. Uh, he's, a very, he's, he's a very smart fellow. Uh, I, I presume what the point he was making, and, I, and if this was his point, I agree with it absolutely and completely, is that we have a, a much better picture and a greater intelligence understanding of what is moving how it is moving, where it is moving, and, uh, and when it is moving, then we have assets to address that. In other words, uh, General Kelly has said, his successor, Admiral Tidd, has said, uh, the commander of the Joint Interagency Task Force South, headquartered in Key West, uh, has said a number of times uh, we have more targets out there that we could actually take down than we have assets available to take them down. And, and the point that they are making and that General Kelly has made in the past is that if he had more aircraft, boats, cutters, ships, and for that matter, ground-based assets, uh, as well as, as aviation assets, he would be able to have a much greater impact in terms of what's moving through. That, I think, is the idea he was trying to, 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 to transmit, and I agree with that completely. So uh, assets, boats, ships, cutters, what does that cost, and what kind of a, a percentage dent would it make? Yep, a fair question. I mean, I'm not going to give you 
uh, a, a, a cost estimate at the end of the day that would come out. Right. Of, uh, right. Uh, General Kelly's former department in terms of that estimate as well as the Department of Defense uh, in terms of what it would cost. You, you know as well as I do, it, it costs a great deal. His position over the years had been that there are cheaper ways to do this. Uh, you, can, you can, for example, use assets uh, that, that are otherwise uh, being performing other missions, such as DOD or, or, or military missions, and while they're transiting a particular zone or while they're engaged in training, uh, use them for these purposes so you get multiple value out of the same asset. And, and I agree with that as well. My own team and INL, we, we maintain the State Department's uh, air wing. Uh, and, and I've got to tell you, I have to tell each and every one of you senators uh, that, that what we have in our inventory is aircraft that have first been processed through the armed forces and discharged because they are no longer of interest to them, provided to the National Guard who use them for as long as they wish. And when they no longer believe they have value, we then get them. We are still able to use these assets. We have the largest number of original issue UH-1H Huey helicopters, I suspect, in the entire world. They're all probably as old as I am, or at least approaching that. That's not particularly young, by the way, Senator. And, uh, <laughs> and we are able still to get value out of them. In other words, there are cheaper ways of doing it, is my point. Yeah, and so, and so the coordination that you talked about, the coordination of those assets that are in the region, I mean, is that a matter of just a, 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 a bureaucratic... Uh, interaction, interagency interaction? I mean, is it a coordination that they could pursue on their own? Is it a matter of congressional legislation that we need to allow it to happen or force it to happen? Uh, I'll, I'll, offer, I'll offer my own views based upon off and on, I guess I first came into this business in 1992 and on the drug side, so that's 25 years of experience. It's, it's a combination of several things. One, relative priorities. In other words, different Departments and different agencies uh, have have their own priority list, and 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 the drug issue will fit somewhere on that priority list. Uh, second will be a, and this is natural. Uh, any agency, any institution, including my own, uh, wishes to to be able to control its own assets and not be told by others what they're supposed to do. Third is an authorities issue, uh, and you'll get when people. I've learned this when people don't want to do certain things, they will find that it is not within their legal authorities in order to do it. That third point eventually I guess would be a congressional issue if we want to get there but my own view is uh, it, it is a coordination issue and, and it is a matter of of making the decision that we will use the assets that we have in the most efficient and effective manner that's one opinion if the chairman would allow me to ask one final question you mentioned Mexico in your previous answer to Senator Shaheen are the reforms to the judiciary in Mexico making a difference in how they are able to prosecute and enforce drug narcotic issues. I'll let, uh, I'll let the esteemed Dr. Palmieri have his own opinion on this if he wishes. My own view, Senator, would be it, it, it's a bit, it's still early to say uh, that the new system has come into play uh, in virtually all of the states. And remember, like in the United States, Mexico, 90% of all law enforcement and, and, and justice is performed at the state level in the United Mexican states. So it has come online. The, the long-term objective, as you know, is to have a much more effective, and efficient system that processes cases in a matter of weeks or at most months that these days take years and years to process. When we are in a position to see those results and that outcome, I think the answer to your question is going to be yes, but I think they're still in the early stages, and I'm not yet prepared to say that it's having the impact that we expect. No, I, I would agree. 
I would agree entirely that uh, it is in the early stages of implementation and the proof will be in the effectiveness of that implementation and the adoption of the new reforms so that there is a more efficient and effective uh, judicial process. Senator Kane. Thank you to the witnesses, um, to my colleagues on the committee. Um, my, my colleagues have asked many of the questions I wanted to. I want to focus on one area that we haven't talked about enough, in my view, and that is as we talk about the way forward and the Columbia peace process, I, I was struck visiting Columbia in February of 2015. President Santos at that point and some of his colleagues said to me, uh, it will be easier to stop the war than to win the peace. Um, and the cessation of active war leaves much to be done. We focused on the narcotics eradication aspect of the current challenge that they have. But as they described the challenge at that time to me, the decades-long civil war left some parts of the country sort of untouched by government services, um, underinvested in economically, poor infrastructure. And so part of this winning the peace was, was not just the eradication of narcotics, but it was going into parts of the country that really hadn't seen a functioning civil government and, and building that uh, in those regions of the country. Talk to me a little bit, each of you, about how you view the Colombian government's effort to tackle that part of the challenge. And I know it's related to the eradication issue because some of the substitution, et cetera, is about economic development. But talk about the, these other aspects of uh, building out civil government in the formerly FARC-controlled areas of the country. I think the Colombian government has made that a priority as it begins to implement the process, the peace, the peace accords. They understand that they need to reestablish government services and government presence in, in these areas to ensure that the peace accord is effectively implemented. They have a plan. They are putting resources to it. Uh, U.S. assistance can complement those efforts. Uh, and I, I think that's, that's exactly right in, in addressing the socioeconomic factors as a part of a, a successful implementation of the peace accord will be critical. Ambassador Brownfield. If I could just add to that, Senator Kane. I mean, I, I agree with the premise of, of, of your question, and I also agree uh, with what President Santos has said to you. And he said it to me, and he said it to, to almost anyone who asked him. Uh, the solution is not just eradication. In fact, we, but we've known this, this for 30 or 40 years. Uh, to be successful, a, a, a drug strategy has to address all elements of the problem. Now, it, it, some may be higher priori priority than others. Some get, may get more resources than others, but you do. You do education. You do alternative development. You do eradication. You do laboratory takedowns. You go after the organizations. You do interdiction, and you eventually get at their financial networks uh, and go after money laundering. You have to address all elements of the chain. Uh, if you leave one completely untouched, you will not succeed. I, and that is the argument that I am making to a certain extent. My concern is that if you put too much of your effort strictly into alternative development and offering financial 
inducements to stop uh, growing coca. Uh, the, what we have learned in decades past is that the campesino, who is not a stupid individual, may be very poorly educated in a classic sense, but knows exceptionally well what's going on around him. He'll take the money and perhaps uh, eradicate right near the road, but 200 yards off the road, uh, he will continue to grow. There has to be the threat of eradication along with the alternative development. That has been my concern. And let me ask you one other question, because your testimony gets at this, and I wonder if it is a binary choice of just yes or no. On page two of your written testimony, you talk about the voluntary eradication and crop substitution plan, um, which includes hiring technicians to implement plan granting of land title to program participants, cash payment for food subsidies, employment contracts for infrastructure projects, but, but then you have this line. The United States is not currently supporting the Colombian government's voluntary eradication and crop substitution program because the FARC is involved in some aspects of the program and remains designated as a foreign terrorist organization under several U.S. laws and sanctions regimes. It, is this a binary choice? I mean, is it, you know, we, we shouldn't be supporting the alternate economic development plan at all because the FARC may be involved in some aspects of it, or we should regardless of that, or we should do it with conditions? If you were advising us uh, based on your experience, what's your advice? Senator, it's not binary, it's at least trinary. Uh, and I will explain in, in 15 seconds or less. We have a legal problem so long as they are listed on the foreign terrorist organization list. We are prohibited by law uh, from, from engaging with the FARC or organizations that are under the FARC's control and or influence. What we are trying to do, uh, be, because the FARC has to a certain extent captured uh, the, the economic development, pro the alternative development process uh, through several front organizations which have for the first time in the history of, of, of Colombia organized the cocaleros, the, 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 the coca growers, uh, into organizations as you see in, in Bolivia to a considerable extent, in Peru to a lesser extent. That then complicates our ability to deal with them. Tranche one in this four-stage Colombian strategy was the southwest, uh, down in Tumaco uh, and, and the province of, of Nariño. We are unable to support that because the FARC has, in a sense, captured uh, the alternative development part of that. The next step is going to be up in Antioquia. That's further to the north and slightly to the west, but still center, uh, central Colombia. There we are trying to work specifically an arrangement whereby the government will work directly with the campesinos themselves, the individual farmers. And we have told the government we will support alternative development. We will provide INCO funding generously provided uh, by the United States Congress to, uh, to, to the Department of State and INL, and we will support alternative development there. We will then, ladies and gentlemen, have, uh, have a test. Mm -hmm. We'll see how it worked in the Southwest, with the FARC largely running the process, how it works up in Antioquia, with the FARC out of the process, and then we'll reach some conclusions. What works best. That is how I want to address your question, and I would hope by the end of this year we'll have some quantifiable data that we could offer in terms of which works best. Excellent. Thank you. Thanks, Mr. Chair. For the record, those 15 seconds took two minutes, but that's, that's good by Senate standards. That's very good by Senate standards. Senator, you don't. Thank you. Thank you, Chairman Markeel. Marco Rubio. Appreciate it very much. Um, when I visited uh, uh, President Santos earlier this year, he stressed the importance of roads, 
um, as a key factor to bring government services to rural areas and to give rural citizens a way to connect to the rest of the country and the world economically. In your opinion, how important are these projects for sustaining peace? Um, and if the U.S. cuts assistance, as proposed by the Trump administration, would this have a negative impact on infrastructure projects and other efforts to maintain peace in former FARC territories? Mr. Palmieri, why don't you start? Yes, sir. Uh, clearly, uh, the ability to build roads into these areas is a part of the Colombian government's efforts to enhance government presence, to deliver the range of social service, education, health services that will win this population over uh, and, and establish government authority in those regions. They also need to create jobs uh, that will provide alternative economic means uh, for these uh, communities. Uh, and uh, they have to also uh, promote uh, financial investment in these areas so they have the capital uh, to create uh, new opportunities. Master Brown. I, I just add one thing, Senator, and, and that is, uh, and I'll be as blunt as possible, if we do not have an adequate and functioning road system, counter-narcotic strategy will not succeed for the very simple reason that the campesino, the farmer, that we're trying to convince to stop growing coca and to grow something legitimate, if he cannot get his crop to market, he is going to go back to growing coca because there the buyers come, pick it up, and, and he, he doesn't need to worry about roads. No roads, no successful alternative development. It's just that simple. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. The ranking member had one question. Uh, well, Our one statement. comment and one question. Uh, I, I'm disappointed, uh, Secretary Brownfield, in you. Uh, when you said that uh, most of us are old enough, uh, more or less, and only looked at the chairman, you know, I, I thought you might have given me a break and looked at I the deny chairman. that. I deny that, Senator. <laughs> On a serious note, Mr. Palmieri, uh, let me ask you, uh, this whole, uh, Secretary Brownfield talked about the totality of what we need to do to deal with the coca production and the drug trafficking, and I agree with him. It, it's either holistic or we don't achieve success. Having said that, the part that the United States has been engaged with uh, on uh, dem strengthening democratic institutions, economic development in rural areas of Colombia, um, AID support for a crop substitution plan, that element of it, how is that working under the present uh, uh, efforts? Well, um, I, I'm, I hesitate to speak for the Agency for International Development, but they do have uh, uh, programs that are designed to, uh, to provide this kind of complementary assistance to the Colombian Yeah, I'm not asking effort. you to speak for them. I'm asking you as the Acting Assistant Secretary of the Western Hemisphere to make an assessment as to what that is doing. Uh, I, as, as implementation gets underway, uh, we have some programs that historically have produced uh, positive results in those three areas that you've mentioned. We're confident that those programs can yield uh, additional results in these uh, demobilization zones in support uh, of the uh, Colombian police band. You know, uh, last The Colombian peace accord implementation. The last point is that uh, when President Santos was here, I had the... Uh, opportunity to be part of the members who met with him. And I get the difficult challenge he has. I get it. Uh, but by the same token, I get a sense that the question of coca production uh, is 
sort of like a wink and a nod and okay, we'll, we'll deal with it, but it's not a priority uh, as he deals with the rest of the implementation of the police plan. And as someone who has supported Plan Columbia from my days as the chairman of the Western Hemisphere in the House of Representatives, from its beginning of it, when it was not popular to support the assistance to Colombia at the time, and who has consistently maintained that support uh, moving to the United States Senate. I have a problem in U.S. taxpayer money continuing to flow to Colombia if extradition isn't going to be seriously dealt with in a way that the United States law uh, needs to be responded to. Uh, and with coca production, if it's just, you know, a tertiary uh, consideration as we move forward. So, uh, you know, I'm strongly supportive of, of our efforts to help Colombia, uh, but Colombia has to be reciprocal on, at least from my perspective, on these two issues, if it wants to continue to have strong support uh, from uh, members uh, of Congress. Thank you. And uh, I just have a follow-up question. Then we're going to start. Are you going to go? I think the ranking member is going to go. But I just want to keep this rolling to the extent possible. And we'll start with that second panel. And then when he gets here, I'll go vote. And then uh, we'll go from there. If, if there's somehow a pause in there, we, it'll be brief. So we're, we're wrapped up here. I just have a, two quick questions for uh, Secretary Brownfield. The first is, well, let me just ask this, because we're going back to Venezuela again, because of the impact it has on Colombia. Could, in your role that you are currently in now, uh, the Bureau of International Narcotics and Law Enforcement. Uh, we have heard and have seen numerous arrests, extraditions, and reports about the role that narco-terrorism, narco-trafficking plays in the government of Venezuela, uh, and in particular high-ranking figures and the family members of high-ranking figures. The current vice president is currently sanctioned for that. Uh, we've seen reports in multiple publications around the world about the role that uh, Diosdado Cabello plays in narco-trafficking and uh, the cartels uh, of the sun, the Cartel de los Solas. Could you describe for us the role of narco-trafficking in the Venezuelan government and in uh, those in power and the impact that has on Colombia? I will, Mr. Chairman, uh, and I will not, uh, I will answer your question uh, directly and not gloss too much over it. Um, I would say to you that over, over the last 15 years, uh, the, the Venezuela route has become, for a while, the preferred, and, and a majority of all cocaine that was exiting Colombia exited through Venezuela uh, and, and then was flown or, 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 or shipped out of Venezuela en route to market, either to North America or to Europe. I believe in recent years, more of that flow has begun to shift to uh, both southwest and northern uh, Colombia in terms of, of departing the country by maritime uh, routes, but nevertheless, a substantial amount still goes through Venezuela. Now, how does that happen? Obviously, it does not happen unless they have a network in Venezuela, a network of officials who will look the other way or support or agree, because we're moving they're moving tons and tons of product uh, through Venezuela. And beginning in the, the early years of the last decade, that network began to penetrate uh, to increasingly higher levels of the Venezuelan government. 
up to the point where I would say by the end of the last decade, uh, there was almost no institution in Venezuela that was involved in security or law enforcement affairs that had not been penetrated to some extent by professional drug trafficking organizations. I believe you could say that 10 years ago. I believe you can say it today. I believe that is the basis for many of the, uh, of, of the sanctions that have been announced uh, under the Drug Kingpin Act, which by definition requires a strong nexus to drug trafficking uh, over the last year uh, or two years here in Washington. Uh, and at the end of the day, that is the reason, that is yet another reason why the Venezuela problem set today is exceptionally complicated. So just to summarize what you've said, there's a substantial amount of drugs, even to this day, exiting Colombia and other parts that traffic through Venezuela. It would be impossible for that to happen without not just the knowledge, but the in-depth cooperation of figures at a high level in the Venezuelan government. Correct. I would say that is true, that, that, uh, factually true. Could they have done it without having penetrated to the highest levels? Maybe. But in my opinion, they have penetrated to the highest levels, making the issue moot. And the fact they penetrated to the highest levels was not they didn't do that as a favor, in essence. If, in fact, high levels of the Venezuelan government have allowed this to happen, they have done so for a profit. They have taken their fee, and they have been paid. And therefore, if that is all true, it explains the extraordinary amount of wealth that has increased and accumulated in the hands of a handful of, ind of individuals linked to or in the government. I'll not give you a precise figure, Mr. Chairman, but I would say multiples of billions of dollars is what I would calculate. Mr. Chairman, in, in addition to the vice president, the current interior minister also has been sanctioned under the Kingpin Act. Would you, without uh, going into anything we can't talk about in this setting, is it fair to say that there are still people in or around government in Venezuela involved in this who have yet to be sanctioned? Yes. It's fine. Yes is the correct answer. Okay. Um, one last point. I have here a memorandum from the previous uh, president of Colombia, who, as we would all agree, was a key uh, figure in the implementation of, of Plan Colombia, uh, Alvaro Uribe Velez, who is now in the Senate in Colombia. And, and it's an extensive memo, which is uh, obviously can't go through it all. But one of, the, one of the claims that he makes that I've heard made repeatedly by others is that one of the causes of this increase in cocaine production in Colombia is the Colombian government's unwillingness to continue eradication efforts. When you talk to President Santos, when you talk to people in the administration in Colombia, they tell you that this was because some of this was in national parks. They also say that it's because the people on the ground figured out how to coat the coca leaves, that they were resistant to the aerial spraying. If you talk to President Uribe, or Senator Uribe now, and those who share his point of view, including a large number of people in Florida who keep tabs on this issue, they argue that this stopped, the, er the eradication effort stopped in order as a, um, as a concession to make peace possible with the FARC. Secretary Brownfield, no one knows about this more than you do on our side. Would you care to opine on the debate? I will be uncharacteristically careful, uh, Mr. Chairman, because just as I admire uh, and, and respect enormously uh, President Santos, I also admire and respect enormously former President Uribe. Uh, I, I, 
I believe they are they, they are two extraordinary men, uh, and uh, and I I hope uh, when they both cease to be president, I, I, I can uh, I can call each of them a friend. I opposed the decision uh, to to end aerial eradication uh, in in 2015. I, I, I acknowledge, by, however, that it was a sovereign decision for the government of, uh, of Colombia and that the government concluded that it had to do so as a result of a Supreme Court decision. I regret that. I do believe it had an impact in terms of the explosion of, uh, of coca cultivation in Colombia. I believe, for example, the entire issue of social protest, which is to say the community where the coca growers are located, uh, rally when eradication missions arrive, block the highway, the police back off because they're concerned about being uh, prosecuted in the event that they, they use force against the community. That was not a problem that they had when they were doing eradi aerial eradication. You cannot protest from the ground uh, an airplane that is flying over a coca field and, uh, and killing the coca from the air. Those who, are, who defend the decision are correct when they say that the coca growers had learned uh, by the year 2015 how to avoid most of the eradication efforts. They consciously grew in, in, in cultivated in, in national parks, in indigenous re reserves, uh, near the borders of Ecuador and Venezuela, and in areas where the FARC had a presence or at least had some degree of influence. This was supposed to stop with the peace accord when the FARC committed in chapter four, I believe, to become an active player in combating, resisting, and eliminating drug trafficking and cultivation, something that I call upon them today to do. And in addition, during my two visits to Colombia earlier this year, I felt we had a, an understanding that they would open up areas previously closed to forced eradication near the borders, in the national parks, in the FARC influence zones, and in indigenous reserves, and start to hit the areas that had not been hit before. That is an area where we still need to do work. Do we need to get back to aerial eradication? I can't do it right now, Mr. Chairman. All of the equipment that we had as of 2015 has been either turned over to the Colombians or we have passed it off to other buyers. From a standing start, it would take us optimistically between a year and two years before we could be operational again, and we would still confront the legal problem that led the Colombian government to terminate aerial eradication two years ago. Well, I want to thank both of you for being here. Two housekeeping items. Uh, uh, thank you both for being here on just, this is my statement, not yours, but I want it to be on the record. I, I when I asked you about the sanctions, I deeply believe that there are individuals in the Venezuelan government today, sanctioned and unsanctioned, who will one day uh, be in, indicted or have been indicted, and I believe will one day be extradited to the United States and face charges in this country for their participation in the drug trade. And I want that to be clear and on the record because uh, that will happen. I don't know if it will happen next year or five years from now, but it doesn't end well for them. Uh, beyond their human rights violations, they have also played a role, in my view, in destabilizing Colombia through the assistance and space they created for the FARC and the narco-trafficking groups uh, that continue to try to undermine the Colombian state, hence the interrelationship of these two matters. But I thank you both for being here. What I'm going to ask now is the second panel begin to transition over. I have to go vote because if I don't, 
and they write an article about how I missed a vote, then you guys are going to have to be my witnesses that I tried to get there. But if Senator Menendez arrives, before I get back, I'm going to ask him to open up the second panel so we can get going, because we also have a nomination right behind it. And, um, but I thank you both for, hearing, for being here. We're going to, uh, while you guys adjust, we're going to be in a brief recess while I go vote, and then either Senator Menendez will open up the second panel, or if I make it back before he does, uh, I'll do that. So thank you both for being here. Uh, we'll recess for a few minutes. All right, the committee could come back to order. The chairman has uh, gone to take a vote, and it's asked me to begin our second panel, uh, which he introduced previously, and we're pleased uh, to have both of your experience here. Uh, and with that, uh, we'll start with Mr. Cardenas. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Menendez. Uh, it is an honor and a privilege uh, to appear before you today to discuss the critical issue of the Columbia peace process and its implications for U.S. policy. I'm going to try to speed read through my, uh, my, written, my oral testimony so we can get to discussion. Um, but I want to begin by saying that the, the narrative of Columbia as a success story should not breed complacency about the serious challenges the country continues to face. Columbia may be at peace, uh, on paper at least, but the process continues to be burdened by the lack of political consensus in Colombia, an untrustworthy partner in the FARC, continued organized criminality, and a politically weak, lame duck president. To consolidate the achievements of a decade of U.S. support, it is imperative that the United States remains engaged to target the, these significant challenges to establishing a real and lasting peace. I described the challenges more fully in my written testimony, but I wanted to note uh, two in particular. First is the lack of popular support for the peace agreement, due largely to the Colombian people's profound lack of trust in the FARC as an honest interlocutor. Thanks to its 50-year record of murder, kidnapping, extortion, and drug trafficking, it is difficult to overestimate the animus the Colombian people have for the group. This continued distrust poses a serious challenge to implementation of the agreement, especially the reintegration of guerrillas into society and its acceptance as a legitimate political movement. And let me just add that the, that the burden to changing this situation is not on the Colombian people and not on the government, but the FARC, who must demonstrate tangibly their supposed change of heart. Secondly, the peace accord will be undermined by continued criminality in Colombia. The demobilization of thousands of FARC guerrillas does not mean the end of conflict and criminality in Colombia. Major organized criminal groups continue to engage in drug and human trafficking, illegal mining, and kidnapping while perpetrating attacks against military and civilian targets. If these groups continue to impede the pacification, stabilization, and development of the rural areas, then we are merely running in place as far as the long-term prospects for peace and combating the drug trade. Senator Menendez, with so much blood and treasure invested in Colombia by the United States over the past 15 years, we have no choice but to help Colombia secure the peace so that the hard-fought-for gains of the past decade are not lost. In particular, we cannot simply allow the agreement to undermine longstanding U.S. counter-narcotics efforts in Colombia, as we heard during the first panel. 
I would advise uh, Congress to also be circumspect about dramatically increasing aid to Colombia without heightened oversight to ensure that in particular is used creatively and purposefully to, on behalf of Colombian efforts to develop self-government and licit economies in areas once controlled by the FARC. Empowering rural Colombians and providing them a stake in their country's future will, in the end, do more to ensure peace than a thousand Nobel Peace Prizes. And Mr. Senator, also to pick up on something that you were saying uh, during your earlier remarks about uh, these programs, alternative development, crop substitution, uh, self-government in the areas controlled by the FARC, the rural areas. I think that the, what the difference is, is today is that uh, if, if we are to follow the logic of President Santos's agreement, then we will have for the first time an opportunity for these programs to really work because what, what, we're, what, we're, uh, what is being suggested is that the FARC will no longer be in a position to spoil these efforts because what has hampered, what has hindered, and what has blocked the success of many of these programs of alternative development, crop substitution, has been the FARC's ability to undermine these programs, block these programs, because they do not want rural Colombians to be able to develop licit economies or else uh, engage in self-government. I would add that the United States should also continue to provide robust intelligence and technical assistance monitoring FARC leaders to ensure they are the otherwise complying with their commitments and are not playing a double game. We should also assist Colombia in helping to uncover FARC assets hidden abroad. That dirty money should not be used to build a political profile and a political agenda, a political movement for the FARC. Let me just conclude by saying that whatever anyone thinks about President Santos' decision to seek peace with the FARC, the United States must continue to maintain common cause with millions of skeptical Colombians who are, who are otherwise resigned to give peace one more chance. We have come too far together at this point to abandon the journey. Thank you. Good afternoon, uh, Ranking Member Menendez. Thank you, members of this committee, for this opportunity to come and testify about Colombia. And it's an honor to be sitting next to my former distinguished colleague, uh, Jose Cardenas. Uh, I would like to summarize my, the remarks that I've written, uh, submitted for the record, but start out by underscoring um, that the amazing success of the U.S.-Columbia strategic partnership is a product of the long-standing bipartisan consensus in favor of Colombia that exists in this body. Indeed, it was thanks to the leadership and oversight of the U.S. Congress that the United States was able to provide sustained support for Plan Colombia throughout the years and to continue that support for Peace Colombia with the $450 million in fiscal year 2017 to help the country implement a historic peace agreement with the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia. And on a personal level, as a Colombian-American, it was actually this leadership uh, by this body that inspired me into public service because it demonstrated the transformational nature of U.S. foreign policy when combined with Colombian political will. So thank you for your continued leadership and for inspiring a young Colombian-American like myself uh, to serve his country for over 17 years. Um, I had the fortune to serve on the National Security Council when uh, President Santos began to set the stage for negotiations with the FARC. By then, the United States had stood by Colombia on the battlefield for over a decade, 
So to us, there was no question that we would continue our support for Colombia as it pursued a negotiated peace. Our rationale was simple. We recognized that supporting a sustainable and just peace presented the best policy option for the United States to achieve a strategic victory against the Colombian drug trade. And that entering into negotiations also offered an opportunity for the Colombian government to delegitimize the FARC for the narco-terrorist organization that it, that it is and masking itself as a belligerent movement by separating criminal elements. Taking the long view, the prospect of a Colombia peace also offered an opportunity for the country to fulfill its full potential as a regional leader and an exporter of security. Successfully addressing the domestic security situation would also allow Colombian foreign policy to embrace a broader international vision that including developing a 21st century military, establishing an active partnership role with NATO, accession to the OECD, and increasing its already robust participation in international fora. Peace also offered an amazing potential for U.S. businesses to benefit while also investing in the broad-based prosperity of Colombia and its people. But we also knew that Colombia would, would need our help with implementation if the talks succeeded, but perhaps more so if they did not. That's why in 2012 we agreed to establish the U.S.-Colombia High-Level Strategic Security Dialogue as a high-level mechanism for two-way communication between our respective national security teams on everything from peace negotiations, the country's security challenges, and military transformation. It was actually the first time since the initial years of Plan Colombia that the United States and the Colombian governments were engaging at such a high level on national security matters and actually starting to think about what the bilateral relationship could look like post-Plan Colombia. Our initial focus was on the counterinsurgency strategy we presented, which represented an integral part of the government's efforts to lay the groundwork for negotiations with the FARC. Under the leadership of then Minister Juan Carlos Pinzon, the government took the fight to the FARC's traditional safe havens and targeted its financial infrastructure to degrade its capabilities and increase the incentive for the group to negotiate in good faith for the first time since its creation. We made human rights central, a central part of every conversation, used the dialogue to convey our expectations with regard to continued counter-narcotics cooperation, and our respective justice counterparts engage actively on matters related to extradition and transitional justice. We also developed a regional plan for cooperation in Central America under the leadership of Assistant Secretary Brownfield. A lot has happened since 2012. At first, we were not represented in Havana, but when talks advanced into critical issues, President Obama and Secretary Kerry agreed to send the distinguished uh, Bernard Aronson as a special envoy in 2014. It took several years of negotiations, but the FARC and the government um, finally reached a peace agreement in November 2016. But the hard part is just beginning. And all those years of painstaking work are now at risk for two reasons. One is the political battle between the current and former president of Colombia in the run-up to next year's legislative and presidential elections and the spike in cult cultivation following the suspension of aerial eradication in 2015. In that context, the August, 20, the August 13 visit of Vice President Pence to Latin America, which includes stops in Colombia, is incredibly important and could determine the course of U.S.-Colombia cooperation over the next several years. Uh, I was just in Colombia and had an opportunity to meet with several senior officials and presidential candidates. And if I was in my former job advising Vice President Pence to go down on his way down to Colombia, I would tell him a couple of things very briefly. First, the question of whether or not to follow through with the implementation of the peace agreement will become central to next year's elections in Colombia. But that debate should be behind us. Uh, a lot of it is the politics and preparation for the elections next year. The focus of the United States should remain on robust implementation. Second, the problem of increased coca cultivation is simple arithmetic. More coca, 
more money to Colombian criminal groups. But aerial eradication is not the only answer. It was originally developed as a short-term solution to create a space for the Colombian government to enter in uh, and establish uh, the uh, presence of the state. Um, it, right now, we're at a time when uh, the Colombians are just as alarmed by us by the spike in coca cultivation, and the focus should be to actually help them do it their way and achieve results through increased law enforcement operations, rural development, manual eradication, and a focus on public health. Third, as uh, my colleague Jose Cardenas said, the FARC must come clean with regards to its finances. Um, they have a fortune that is estimated somewhere in the billions of dollars, and we also have to get better as a U.S. government to uh, tackle financial the financial aspect of the drug trade. And the Congress can actually play an important role in helping the administration develop those tools. Fourth and lastly, and I'll finish here, um, Senator, is the Colombian National Police needs all the support it can get to fill the vacuum. As a part of the peace agreement, the military is supposed to cede that space to the police, and they have to hire a significant amount of people, but they also need air mobility, technical expertise, and training if they're to fill that space. And, and last but not least, sir, uh, Back to where I started, which is the bipartisan support of Colombia. I would urge Congress to signal that support, continued support through the 2018 uh, budget. The president uh, reduced that request for Colombia from 391 million to 250 million, which suggests the United States is walking away from Colombia. When compared to the billions of dollars the United States spends in the Middle East every week, the impact of 10 billion over the life of Planet Colombia represents a better return of investment. Um, and I'll leave it there. Thank you very much. Thank you both very much. Um, I think I'll start uh, asking questions in order to move uh, the hearing along, and when the chairman arrives, uh, yield to him. So uh, let me ask you, uh, could the United States effectively help Colombia promote stability and work productively with our partners there without sustained American investments through the State Department and USAID? I, I think that, that uh, we bring a, an essential complementary role. Uh, I agree with the implication that this is a problem that the Colombian people uh, are going to have to address fully. I think, if I'm not mistaken, I, I saw as, as, measure, as figures as high as $30 billion dollars that the Colombian government expects will be required for the full Im implementation of the peace plan, including uh, the rural development and occupying the spaces that it historically uh, has, has not. But I think that the United States plays an essential role, first of all, because we... But can we play that? My question, yes. uh, for sake of time, is can we play a significant role if we are not, uh, in addition to our engagement, engaged with some resources here, both uh, on the uh, rule of law, economic stability, yes, uh, economic development, uh, uh, and the State Department's diplomacy engagement. Yes, uh, we, we, have, we have key and essential expertise to, to, uh, to offer in terms of uh, developing licit economies in terms of linking those uh, rural areas with, with the rest of the country, and in terms of the, the self-governance, improving our programs through IRI, NDI. These bring a, a special expertise mm -hmm. 
to to uh, to get to filling that space. Mm -hmm. Mr. Gonzalez, uh, Senator, I would I would say the answer is no, uh, for a couple of reasons. I think first, over the course of Plant Columbia, the synergy that has developed between our militaries, uh, between our police forces, and even at the diplomatic level, has been something that has become incredibly close. And so, if if our strategic interest is to preserve that alignment with Colombia, we, we need to have a seat at the table. And I think secondly, when it comes to, no matter how successful the implementation of the peace agreement is, and there's no debate that there are aspects of that agreement, including human rights uh, um, and transitional justice um, and, and how members of the FARC maybe participate in political life, there will be criminal elements that have no interest in actually being a part of that process. And there is no other government or country in the world that can actually help the Colombians achieve the strategic victory over these criminal elements in the way that, that the United States can. We and also for that, want to and see for that we need to have resources to do it. Yes, sir. But, and I would, I would add that the, the new element would be that the, the private sector, the U.S. private sector, can bring significant resources to bear in the development of Colombia's infrastructure in the countryside. And so that, that should be a, an added element and complexity to, to the entire process. Mm -hmm. So now let me ask you, where, uh, you know, I both hear you say we need to stay the course, and I, I largely agree. But uh, as a policymaker, what would you be saying to me if extraditions uh, of wanted criminals uh, in the United States doesn't take place? If coca eradication, uh, however you devise the broad-based plan, not just area eradication, substitute crop, uh, police enforcement, all of the elements that one would agree is necessary doesn't take place. At what point does one consider success is peace, uh, ultimately the goal in the absence of all other things? From a United States perspective, maybe from a Colombian perspective it might be, but from me going to a United States taxpayer and say we should give uh, hundreds of millions of dollars, continue to give hundreds of millions of dollars to the Colombian government, even in the face of uh, criminals not being extradited, even in the face of coca still growing significantly, and, uh, and we haven't even had a really chance to talk about human rights, which I think is very important as well. Um, how do I justify that to uh, American taxpayers? Senator, I think the uh, the word used earlier was reciprocity, and uh, and I take a back seat to nobody in in is in insisting on the fact that U.S. interests remain protected and remain uh, central to our engagement with Colombia. I disagree totally with the the uh, the slow walk on extraditions. I disagree with ending. Uh, aerial fumigation. I think that in our uh, engagements with Colombian officials, we continue to need to insist on respect for U.S. interests in this. We do have, obviously, overall bilateral interests uh, or, or uh, uh, joint interests in suppressing criminality and suppressing drug trafficking with Colombia. But we also have some very specific interests, and these have to be protected as we go forward with, with uh, Colombia. Excuse me. We will see a, a, a new government uh, taking uh, uh, office next year in Colombia, and I think that that's where we pick up with the new candidates is a, uh, an insistence on uh, defending U.S. interests in this 
uh, bilateral relationship. Senator, just very briefly, I think that it's a balance of strategic patience and, and rigorous oversight, which you have a long history of, of, of advancing in the, in the region. Certainly, the, the bipartisan consensus in favor of Colombia exists on the pillars of eradication of coca, of the active extradition relationship, and the respect of human rights. All of those three are being debated right now, are potentially in peril as Colombia goes to implement the peace agreement. And I think that in terms of using taxpayer money effectively, um, we, we have a place to actually have the conversation with the Colombians that on the one hand respects that only Colombians can really find the right balance between justice, peace, and truth, but also saying that if the United States is gonna actually be there to support, there are certain expectations with regard to international humanitarian law, with regard to the rule of law and the active extradition relationship, and, and they need to demonstrate results on, on the COCA front. Um, I think the Colombians do recognize this. They recognize the urgency of it. And so I think an active uh, dialogue, but also secondly, uh, my former colleagues at the Department of State would, will shudder when I say this, but the conditionality that the U.S. Congress includes in the appropriations legislation has been instrumental in the success of Plan Colombia and should, and should continue. Yeah. I think lastly, sir, just uh, considering additional tools for law enforcement would be something I think that, that would help increase the, the synergy between law enforcement in the United States and law enforcement yeah. in Colombia to achieve gains. Now, I, I for one, uh, I am of the view that the conditionality uh, is important here to achieve what I believe are mutual goals, but certainly it's, it's sometimes the, some of the hardest elements of uh, what your uh, uh, work is, is the ones that we avoid for as long as we can, uh, and for so long as aid continues to flow, uh, and a yes, I get it, but you know, you don't actually do something uh, works, then uh, that's what will happen. And at some point, my own view is, uh, as a long-term supporter of this, is that conditionality is going to be important to uh, meet uh, the three pillars of uh, justice, i.e. extradition, uh, a work on narcotics trafficking, and a promotion of human rights uh, as elements uh, of our policy. Mr. Chairman, uh, thank you. Thank you, and thanks for starting it up so we wouldn't have to waste anyone's time. Um, well, let me first begin with a sort of, uh, you guys have both watched the sort of internal debate going on in, in Colombia between the, and I, I just characterize it this way because it's the easiest way to do so, the sort of people that hold the view that former President Uribe holds and who by and large uh, I think are represented in the Colombian American community that the peace deal, they, they want peace but they want peace with security, uh, that, that in many ways this peace deal is illusory in that front and that, um, and that in many ways it perhaps contributes to a lack of, of security. And the flip side, of course, is the Santos government's view that, uh, that this is a good thing and that we need to continue to move forward on it. Uh, obviously, there'll be new presidential elections coming up soon. What is your take on how central an issue that is going to be in that campaign? And we certainly <coughs> was the central issue in the referendum vote that occurred a couple years ago. But how has that played out since then? And what role will that play in the next presidential national election in Colombia? Would you view it as the central issue that will be debated? Anyway, you want to go in alphabetical order? Yeah. Pardon us. <laughs> uh, uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. 
I think that uh, my sense is in watching the uh, the ebbs and flows of Colombian politics as they head into an election year is is a tremendous amount of fatigue, uh, fatigue with the uh, the the cacophony uh, of uh, of yelling and shouting about the the peace process. I think that um, my own sense is that as uh, difficult as it was for many Colombians to swallow, they are willing to see how the process uh, evolves. In, in other words, no one, I believe, is going to campaign on a strict uh, uh, platform of tearing up the agreement. I think that perhaps there will be efforts to, uh, to sharpen up enforcement, some of the aspects, more controversial ones. But I also think that, that speaking generally about Colombia, is that, is that there's a popular uh, uh, frustration that, Senator, uh, that uh, President Santos has put so much effort into, so much expended, so much political capital attention into the peace process that other problems of Colombia have been ignored. And that you see in a stagnant economy, you see uh, uh, complaints about social services, you see complaints about education. So uh, a, 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 uh, a candidate coming next year is going to have to come up with a, and also that has led to a frustration with the traditional political parties in Colombia. So candidates next year um, are not going to campaign up or down on the peace process. They're going to campaign on who can best provide a, 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 a positive uh, pathway forward for the country as a whole in terms of economic growth, in terms of, again, improving services. So uh, no one to, to, that, that I see at this point is going to be campaigning up or down on the peace process, but there will be efforts, I, I, I would predict, to, to sharpen up. Uh, Mr. Chairman, just if I may just digress briefly on Venezuela. As a former government official, one of the liberating parts is that I don't have to clear what I have to say. And, and I just want to say that uh, the, the legitimacy of a government is based on its ability to protect fundamental freedoms and rights. By that measure, Nicolás Maduro is illegitimate leader of Venezuela. And secondly, by um, rigging this election uh, and packing the members of the Constituent Assembly with loyalty to the government, he is equally, I think, held illegitimate elections and, and the current government is illegitimate. The way forward is, has to be an electoral one. But in this moment, it's, it's something that the U.S. government should come out vociferously and, and actually say, say as such. On, on the peace process, it, one of the things I said in my, in my opening is that one of the dangers right now to the peace process is the debate between the current and former president, which in many ways is, is highly politically charged in advance of, of next year's election. In some ways, that's par for the course uh, when it comes to politics in Colombia, but it is distracting from the real conversation about how do you make sure that the FARC's commitment to spend its money to compensate victims is actually something that they deliver on? Uh, the questions of transitional justice and human rights uh, and the questions of FARC's political participation. Jose Miguel Vivanco from Human Rights Watch has come out and said that it's, it's unfathomable for a, uh, a FARC member that has pending charges to actually run for office. I would agree with that. And so it's not right now a question of whether or not the agreement should stand but how Colombians can actually get to the most effective implementation. The challenge, though, is, is again a political one because since most Colombians live in urban centers, they, to them the war has been over for a while. They have not actually had to suffer from violence of the FARC. Um, 
And, and so when they see on television that the FARC is getting uh, paid or, or, uh, or, that mem or that people in the countryside that are growing coca are being compensated above the minimum wage, they are rightly to be upset. Um, and the danger is that whoever comes in as the new president sees the, 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 uh, the, the increase in violence, which will be a consequence of the implementation in the short term, and sees the unpopularity of some of the parts of this agreement and decides to walk back. I think that would be a mistake uh, because the, the right way to do this is to actually have robust implementation and find a balance that works for the Colombian people and addresses some of the fundamental challenges of inequality, of lack of presence of the state in, in Colombia. Just to, uh, to further elaborate on that point, it's always been my position that Colombia is a sovereign nation that has elected representatives who have to respond to their people for the decisions they make. And so I have never opined on whether I am in favor or not in favor of the peace agreement. That belongs for the, to the Colombian people. They voted against it, but through their constitutional process, they got it through the Congress uh, in Colombia, and uh, they'll have an election, and people will be held to account for how they voted and what their positions might be. Where I do think we have a role to play is in how it impacts U.S. foreign policy. And the first thing I've outlined, I was asked about it in the hallway, and that is we've, we've got to go to our colleagues every year and justify the amount of money that we are putting towards this effort and do so now in an environment where you see an uptick in cocaine production and coca uh, cultivation. And so I could see where my colleagues would say to us, well, why are we spending more money if it's getting worse, not better, and if it, if it implicates the... The, the peace deal, as a result, it endangers it. So that's the first thing. The second thing it touches upon is the standing of the FARC. We still designate them, and rightfully so, as a terrorist group. There's the example you know, that I ran out of time to ask uh, for our government witnesses, but on the 13th of February of 2003, there were four Americans. They were Department of Defense contractors. They were on a counter-narcotics flight mission. They were shot down by the FARC. The pilot, who was a retired member of the U.S. Army's Delta Force, was executed on the spot. There were three Floridians who were captured. They were held captive. They were tortured for over five and a half years until they were rescued by the Colombian army. And uh, so as we talk about the future of the Colombian peace accord and the demobilization of the FARC for the good of the Colombian people, we also have a group of Americans, all of whom were former U.S. military and their families, who were subjected to atrocities and crimes at the hands of the FARC. And to see people any way associated with this wearing a suit and coming up to Washington as elected representatives of Columbia is a very difficult thing for anybody to tolerate here, not to mention a very difficult thing to justify in, in, in terms of our relationship and our funding. The other concern is that there are people we worked with hand-in-hand in, hand in this effort who could now potentially find themselves standing trial before a FARC kangaroo court in which some of them have been granted immunity and the like. So these things begin to impl implicate or, or begin to... Uh, uh, impact uh, our ability to seek the funding. And so I've always pursued this, not through the lens of what is the Colombian people decide. They're going to have elections, unlike in Venezuela, that are legitimate. Mm -hmm. But how do we come back here and justify how that program is outlined? And I think I walked in, but the ranking member was talking about conditionality. There's, at least for our money, it's got to be clear our money cannot be used to reward the FARC, shouldn't even be used to pay uh, compensation for victims. The FARC should be paying that because they're... And, and the like, and also, um, obviously, what's the, what's, what's the point of getting rid of the FARC if the territory they, they once held and the industry they once ran has simply been replaced by another group, be it dissident members of the FARC, the ELN, the Bakrim, the, the Gulf Clan, or the, or the like. The second uh, question that related to this is, and I think we need to start thinking about it in these terms as well as, 
we need to start thinking within our planning about what does instability in Venezuela mean to Colombia. In the short term, migratory pressures from a catastrophic uh, meltdown that continues to happen humanitarian-wise. I know the Colombians should be very concerned about that. So my question to both of you is, number one, as we look forward on Plan Colombia, should there be elements of that that take into account some potential issues at the border with migration and the like? And the second is long-term, uh, start thinking about what would it mean if Nicolás Maduro is actually able to pull this thing off, hold on to power, him or someone like him remains in power. And you saw just two nights ago after the, the fraudulent election, which, by the way, the voting machine people, the, 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 the company um, CEO of Smartmatic, said that the, that the machines were tampered with to affect the number of people voting. They didn't have to affect the impact of the, the outcome because everybody voting Everybody running was in favor of Maduro, but they, and they, maybe they, they messed with that as well, but you have here from BBC this morning the CEO of the company that provided the voting machines saying the voting machines were tampered with. Um, so there you go. But, but going back to the point of, of them being able to hold on to power, one of the things you heard them talking about that night in, in their speeches is imagine if they did a constituent assembly in Colombia. Imagine if they did a constituent assembly in Brazil, in Mexico, in Argentina, almost as to imply that once we hold on to power here and we stabilize this situation, we are going to use our resources to support people just like us in all of these other countries. And imagine a decade from now, a Venezuela-style regime in Colombia, in, in Honduras, in Guatemala, in Panama, in Costa Rica. You already kind of have that in Nicaragua. Uh, you know, and, and so you can just begin to imagine how problematic it is. So, so I guess my question on that point is, what should we be doing as part of Plan Colombia to help Colombia in the short and long term with regards to what's happening in Venezuela? Uh, Mr. Chairman, I, I, would, I would say that um, in addition to, I actually think the FARC does want to drive Colombia toward a constituent assembly, but that its democratic institutions are strong enough and will survive, not in Venezuela, that since the beginning of Chavez, they've reduce them to, to rubble, and they're not able to actually grapple with something like this. But you mentioned the, the, the hostages taken by the FARC. I would also, I was in Colombia uh, a couple of weeks ago, and I visited El Nogal, which was a nightclub that was bombed in 2002. And, and there are memorials there to the 65 people that were killed by a, a car bomb that the FARC set off that included, I think, two American citizens that were killed in that. And so it reminds you that the, the FARC is a narco-terrorist organization. And, and as such, they may, they may have some sort of uh, arrangement with regard to transitional justice here, but they should never, ever be able to go to the beaches of Miami. Uh, and the United States and the U.S. Congress should never allow the abrogation of U.S. judicial claims, law enforcement claims, over, over these individuals. At, at the end of the day, when you look at peace processes around the world, the balance between peace justice and truth is never perfect. And it's a matter often of perspective or of where you've been on the side, particularly when it comes to protected conflicts like the one in Colombia. Uh, I think only the Colombians will know that exact balance, but you're right to say that uh, the US Congress has a voice in that debate. Uh, and particularly when it comes to international humanitarian standards. Uh, and so that's something that I think needs to be, continue to be emphasized. Even, even as I know you have a good relationship with President Santos, uh, and President Uribe and, and President Pastrana. It's something that I think is, when you have a close friend, you have to have that, that direct conversation. On top of all of this, you have a Colombia that has this enormous task of implementing a peace deal and the potential humanitarian disaster right at its border. The first thing that will happen if there's some sort of 
ex, you know, uh, meltdown of the Venezuelan economy is that Venezuelans are going to go to Colombia, much like Colombians went to Venezuela in, in the late 90s. And so that is actually a humanitarian issue. Uh, I know that Colombians have actually been preparing for this. I know the U.S. government has been preparing for this. But up until now, the Venezuelan government has not allowed uh, the delivery of, of food, of international humanitarian assistance. And that's something that needs to change. And I think U.S. pressure should try to, to, try to get them to that point. Um, the second thing is, is you, you may have non-state actors that have access to some of the military equipment that exists in, in Venezuela. You, they have uh, surface-to-air missiles. They have, um, they have several military assets that in the wrong hands could actually cause a, a, a regional problem. And so I think that is a regional solution that I think the United States and the uh, administration and the Congress should be having with our regional partners to, to ensure that that those challenges are, are contained. Just suffice it to say that, and I, don't, I know we're going to run out of time because we have a, an ambassador hearing that we have to take up here at the conclusion of this. But just to be clear, uh, as we understand how other elements such as this have empowered themselves in the region, they run for office, they get elected as a minority party, they use democratic processes to go get and gain power and then begin to govern undemocratically. We're under no illusion that that would be the goal of the FARC once they become engaged politically, is to engage themselves in the political life, first through the legitimate organisms of the democratic process, but eventually to gain power, and once there, go in the direction that the Sandinistas and Ortega have taken Nicaragua, and that Chavez and now Maduro have taken Venezuela, and certainly having a Maduro regime next door supportive of them would make them stronger in that effort, not weaker. And, and I, I ask you, Mr. Cardenas, about it, but I, don't, I think I hear that embedded in both of your statements and, and testimony today. Uh, I'll be very quick, Mr. Chairman. I think you, you describe the political agenda of the FARC to a T. I, I do not believe there has been any profound change of heart uh, among the FARC. I think that they are merely uh, changing their, their camo garb uh, for civilian dress uh, merely as a tactic um, uh, to achieve political power. And then, as you have correctly noted, emulate the uh, the same agenda as we've seen others. And I think what 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 is key to this, to 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 impeding their plan or otherwise uh, making them uh, earn whatever political uh, legitimacy they aspire to, is to is to go after the money, find their offshore accounts, and. Uh, seize that money so that it is not employed directly to either suborn democratic institutions in Colombia, buy off political support, as Chavez did with the oil windfall. On uh, Both you and the ranking member uh, mentioned about uh, having to continue to justify. I think that uh, U.S. assistance to Colombia, I, I think that, that I would urge the Trump administration to make political appointments to get politicals in some of these jobs, to appoint a strong ambassador in Bogota, to push the U.S. agenda, our interests in our bilateral relations, to achieve the successes that we want to see without compromising on the kind of expectations that we have for the taxpayer money. Venezuela is a disaster for Colombia. It, it is not only uh, regarding the narco trafficking, the, the consolidation of a narco state next door, what impact that will have on the, on the coca growers and the traffickers in Colombia, but also, as you note, Mr. Chairman, the humanitarian crisis of Venezuelans pouring over the border into these very same rural areas that the Colombian government 
and partners like the United States are setting out to pacify and stabilize. It is an unmitigated disaster. That's, and, and here you have Colombia, uh, here you have Venezuela and Cuba as co-guarantors of the peace agreement. It just goes to show that when you go, when you go to the local mafia, Don, for a favor, you're basically at his mercy for the rest of your life. Well, on that uplifting note, we will. Um, <laughs> uh, we want to thank both of you for being here. We apologize for the, you know, the disruption in the back and forth. I, I do want to ask unanimous consent to include for the record of this hearing a statement from former Colombian President Alvaro Uribe, which I referred to earlier, and also a statement from Jose Miguel Vivanco from Human Rights Watch, uh, uh, which I believe uh, Mr. Gonzalez uh, referred to uh, a moment ago in his testimony. And again, I want to thank everyone for being here today. The record of the hearing will remain open for 48 hours. And with that, this hearing is adjourned.